Pray with me. Father, we are, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for that invitation to come as we are. Broken, hurting, uh, with hopes that uh, are yet to be met. Hopes that maybe will never be met. But Father, we come as we are and pray that we won't leave here the same. We pray that you'll shape us by your word, by your spirit, even by the people who were sitting next to you this morning. That we'll leave having been transformed by your grace in some way. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so the Christmas season is officially upon us. It is now perfectly acceptable to listen to Christmas carols. It is now acceptable to watch Rudolph and Elf without fear of reprisal. And we've kicked off Advent season here at the church with the lighting of the first candle of Advent, the candle of, of hope. Hope, it, it's a great thing. But maybe we have too much hope. Am I muted? Okay, maybe we have too much hope. There we go. We're good now. I don't mean that we literally have too much hope, but maybe we just talk too much or, or overuse that word, hope. I mean, think about all the different ways we use that word, from the very, very trivial to the incredibly profound. Uh, no one has ever accused me of being excellent with the English language. So you're going to have to pardon me for my suggestion here. Take it, leave it, do whatever you want with it. But I'm suggesting that we introduce a few new words to the English language to help us with this concept of, of hope. Maybe a sliding scale, a spectrum. And so if, we're, if what we're hoping in is really incredibly trivial, why don't we use the word hopey? You know, kind of hope and play together. Hopey. You know, so I'm going to the mall today, and I, I hopey I'll find a good parking spot. Or, or I hopey that new tool that I want will be under the Christmas tree on Christmas morning. Uh, if it's a little bit more serious, maybe we should use the word hopish. Kind of hope and wish together. You know, I hopish my kids will get a good job when they graduate from college so they're not living in my basement and playing video games when they're 25. I hopish the Indians will win the series next year. Okay, that's a serious, deep-seated hope. It's important to me. Hopish. I wish we could keep the word hope and use it for one thing and one thing only. The hope that comes to us from God through Christ. Because that kind of hope is categorically different than every other hope hope that we use that same word for. The hope that comes to us from God through Christ is an eternal hope. It's not temporary. It's not fading. It's a profound hope, not trivial. And it's a certain hope, not a pipe dream kind of hope. I, I wish we could just use the word hope for that, the hope that comes to us from God through Christ is eternal, it's profound, it's sure, but it's also complex. It doesn't come to us all at once, it unfolds in stages. And this morning as we look at that passage that was read, Isaiah 11, 1 through 9, I want to think with you about how this hope unfolds 
and how then we live in this hope as it unfolds. Before we dive right in and and look more at that text from Isaiah, some background might be helpful. I hope will be helpful. I hopish will be helpful. Uh, So what's happening in, in Isaiah and in his world at the time that he's penning this prophecy? Well, Israel, God's people, has been divided into two separate nations now. There's a northern kingdom, which remains, uh, retains that title, Israel. And there's a southern kingdom, which is now called Judah. Israel has committed great apostasy. They've wandered far from God. They're on the brink uh, of being taken into captivity by the superpower in the region called Syria. I'm sorry, Assyria. They haven't quite gone that route yet. They're not conquered Matter of fact, they're threatening Judah. Israel is. Israel is threatening Judah, and they've made an alliance with another nation, Syria. So Judah's there, and they're being threatened by Judah. Let me get this straight now. Judah is being threatened by Syria and Israel. And King Ahaz of Judah is trying to figure out, how do I get out of this? And is about to make an alliance with Assyria. See, that's why I'm getting confused. There's too many Syrias and Assyrias. Assyria is the great superpower of the region. So politically, if you're going to make an alliance with someone, Assyria is who you'd want to go to. It makes sense. But Isaiah comes with a word from God to King Ahaz of Judah and says, don't do that. I know on the surface it makes sense, but don't put your hope in Assyria. Instead, put your hope in me, God. Ahaz doesn't heed that advice, and it turns out to be disastrous. Through the prophet, you get this vision of this great nation, Assyria, being absolutely laid waste by God. And it's this irony. You know, Ahaz, you're putting your hope in Assyria and not in me, but look what I do to Assyria. I chop them down like a forest. So that's the background. And it helps us understand King Ahaz, he has this hope, but it is really only a hopish, kind of ordinary hope. In a military alliance with Assyria, God is calling him and us through Isaiah to a deeper, better, more profound hope. A hope that comes from him. And I said, said, this this hope, it's complex. It unfolds in stages. The first stage is simply the hope being offered. The hope being offered. When I was 15, I had my youth group leader, who was also one of my really good friends. And he knew my hope was that when I turned 16, I'd get my license, have a car, and I'd have that kind of independence that comes with being able to drive and just go wherever you wanted. That's what every 15, 16-year-old guy is hoping for, right? That's, that's what's at the forefront of your mind. Just want to, that independence, that autonomy. So he said, I'll sell you my van when you've got enough money. To me, that sounded perfect. This van was perfect if you were a stalker or wanted to live down by the river, Okay. <laughs> It had particle board floors. It, it had paneling on the, the, the sidewalls. 
It had a gun rack. I didn't own a gun, but it had a gun rack. It only had two seats, the front two. We improvised and put lawn chairs in for any other passengers. But I didn't have the van yet. I just had an offer of it. I didn't have the money. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a license. At that point, my hope was entirely in the future. So it was with Israel. I mean, this is, okay, this analogy between my van and the hope that Israel had, it's a horrible analogy, and it's going to run through the whole sermon. Okay, so just stick with me. But that's the kind of hope that Israel had. It was a hope that was entirely in the future and significantly distant future. It wasn't a hope that would be arrived tomorrow. But Isaiah points them to a sure, deep hope. He points them to a a different kind of king that God was going to send them. A a king who was fit to rule. He was a descendant from the line of, of David. The way he says it is, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. That shows you how distant this is going to be. Because David's dynasty is going to be reduced to a stump. And then eventually, out of that stump, a shoot will come. That shoot will become a Davidic king, the Messiah. It's Jesus. He's entirely fit to rule because this king is endowed with the Spirit in a unique and powerful way. The Spirit of the Lord rests upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might. Those are great qualities for a king to have. Wisdom. They can see beyond the surface of the matter. Discern the heart of an issue. And counsel and understanding. Not only do they see the issue for what it really is, they can plan and move wisely develop a correct, good agenda, and might. They can carry through, the, through with the plan. Wisdom, power, might, and the fear of the Lord. It says this king's delight will be in the fear of the Lord. The book of Proverbs kind of circles us back. And it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So this king will be wise through and through. He's fit to rule, And Isaiah gives us a little bit of a glimpse of what his rule will look like. He'll rule with justice, perfect justice. He won't just be limited to what he can see and hear, what's observable. He can see to the very heart. So he rules with perfect justice, not just for the rich, not just for the powerful, but for the needy and the oppressed. And he rules in righteousness. He's not motivated for his own gain, dishonest gain. He's not corrupt. He's reigning in righteousness and justice. And then you get this beautiful picture of the Eden-like condition that his reign establishes. There's no more enmity, no more hostility. Even the natural order is set to right. The wolf can lay down with the lamb. The bear and the cow graze together. The lion isn't hunting for prey. It's eating hay. 
The little child can go out and play next to the cobra's den. Not something I would encourage my kids to do now. But the reign of this Davidic, righteous, perfect king reestablishes harmony. Perfect peace. I think the best word for it is shalom, which isn't just peace as in the absence of hostility. It's wholeness. It's restored perfection. That's what Isaiah is calling Judah and us to, to that hope. Not just in these small things that we attach our hope to, but to the grand hope that God is offering in his kingdom, his eternal kingdom. Now when you look at this, what, what was this hope anchored to? Uh, Isaiah wasn't looking at the times and looking for you know, signs of the times and saying, oh, there's a little thing there that we can grab onto and latch our, attach our hope to. He wasn't like one of those you know, economic prognosticators who's looking through and saying, you know, it's a pretty deep recession now, but unemployment's going down, so there's reason for hope. He's not looking at any signs of the time to anchor his hope to. The times are pretty desperate for Judah. Enemies are all around. Isaiah has already said that they're going to face God's judgment. So it's not the signs of the times that are hopeful. He's anchoring his hope in God and in God's character. God's love for his people and his faithfulness to his promises. That's where Isaiah sets his anchor. That's where our anchor For our hope is in God and in his character. But when Isaiah is penning these words of hope, it's entirely in the future. But eventually, hope arrives. So a few months before my 16th birthday, I had saved enough, $600, to buy this van. I bought it. Parked it in my driveway. Couldn't drive it yet because I didn't have a license. I'd go out and sit in it and start it sometimes because it was mine and that was cool. I did some work on it, which I'm no mechanic, so that meant, you know, fixing the muffler by taking a coat hanger and rehanging the muffler and things like that. But part of the hope had arrived. It wasn't fully developed yet. I wasn't able to drive it, go out with my friends in it. But part of the hope had arrived. 700 years after Isaiah pens these words of hope, hope is born. It doesn't arrive in its fully consummated form yet, but the shoot that grows from the stump of Jesse arrives. Uh, The king of hope is born. The hope is still yet future, but it's dawn. In the birth of Jesus Christ. The hope arrives in the most humble of ways, right? To an unassuming young woman. Born without fanfare. He's celebrated by shepherds and by foreign wise men. And oh yeah, there was the angels. But no kings and princes are welcoming the birth of hope. He comes humble and Hunted. 
uh, the powers of this world are trying to extinguish this hope from growing and maturing. And Herod slaughters hundreds of innocents, hoping to squash out this hope. But hope grows. Hope grows in the wisdom and in the nurture and the stature of the Lord. And he is endowed in a special way with the Spirit. He goes when the time is right and begins proclaiming and establishing the kingdom of God. Preaching it to the poor. Preaching it to the disenfranchised. Giving hope to those who had no hope. Preaching about justice and righteousness. Describing what the kingdom of God will look like in ways very parallel to what Isaiah has penned so many years before that. But not all aspects of Isaiah's vision were realized then. Hope was born, but it was not yet consummated. Hope arrived, but hope is still on the way. Hope is present, but still future. Hope is already here and ours, but not yet full. And so we wait, we long for, we even sometimes ache for this hope to ripen, to come to fruition, to be completed. Eventually, I did get my license. It took two tries. I ran a red light. That's not good. And I got my van, and I could drive my van. I couldn't drive it far because it got eight miles a gallon, and I wasn't rich. And none of my friends liked riding in my van. They were always afraid I was going to break their arm because, you know, we'd put them in lawn chairs, and I'd take a turn real hard, and they'd fall. None of my potential dates wanted to ride in my van because you smelled like exhaust, and none of their dads would let them ride in my van because it was a stalker van. My dad wouldn't even ride in my van because it gave him a headache. It was so loud and probably the fumes had something to do with it. But I had my freedom. I had my independence. It was great. Hope was completed. And it disappointed. I only kept that van for a few months. It was awful. That's what worldly hopes do for us. They disappoint even when they've been completed and we feel like it's been attained, there's a tinge of disappointment. Because no hopes can fully satisfy. That's why God is calling us to put our hope in him and in the perfect that he is establishing in his eternal kingdom. We've been living in this already not yet, for two millennia now. And the hope continues to grow. And the people of God continue to long for it and ache for it because we know this hope won't disappoint. When you look at the words of Isaiah, here and in other chapters, and the words of Jesus, and the words of Revelation, just please dwell on those words. They paint a picture of this hope that is 
It's mind-boggling. It is an eternal kingdom where there is no violence, no war. Weapons have been beaten into plowshares. There is no death, no sickness, no mourning. You know what else is absent in the eternal kingdom? Hope. What? Everything that we have ever hoped for is given. There's no need to hope for things now. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says, of these three, three things remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest is love. Because faith and hope pass away. Faith becomes sight and hope it's delivered. There's no violence, no war, no death, no mourning, no sickness. But the knowledge of the Lord covers the earth. Knowledge, not just information about the Lord. Knowledge, I think, in the deep Hebrew sense of knowledge. Intimate, personal knowledge of the Lord fills the earth. That's the hope we are called to. That's the hope we have as an anchor. But how do we live in that? What, what does it mean for us to have that hope, to live that hope? Now, let me suggest three things. Three things that I want you to kind of leave here taking with you regarding this hope. First, because we have this hope, and it's our firm, true hope, we need to recognize that all other hopes are less than ultimate and learn to treat them as less than ultimate. That was part of Israel's problem here in Isaiah, too. Israel, Judah, and King Ahaz, they were treating deliverance from kind of physical, political, military enemies as the ultimate hope. But it wasn't. God wanted something different, better, more solid for him. Even the promised land itself, it kind of what gave Israel identity was this land. Having and holding and possessing the land, that wasn't even ultimate. It was meant to point to something better, an unshakable kingdom. God's holy mountain is what Isaiah describes it as. But they were treating those things as ultimate when they weren't. And we do the same thing. We treat things as ultimate. And we put our hope in things as ultimate when they really aren't. Economically, we get just as panicked as everyone else when the markets go down, when the economy slides into regression, recession, as though our hope was in our wealth, as though our hope was in retirement. Those are good things, don't get me wrong, but they're not ultimate. Or on the political scene, 
when your candidate wins or when your candidate loses. Hope is not lost. Our, our hope isn't tied to a party or a candidate or, frankly, to the prosperity and success of this nation because the kingdom of God isn't tied to those things. So when your candidate wins, the kingdom of God hasn't advanced. And if your candidate loses, the kingdom of God hasn't suffered some great setback. Those things are important, but not ultimate. And on the kind of the more personal level, those are more corporate hopes, right? On the more personal level. Your hopes, your ultimate hope, isn't tied to your kids and their success or their happiness. You want that. I want that. But that's not our ultimate hope. And it's not tied to a happy, long marriage. It's not tied to a good career. If your team wins, remember, Chicago is not the new Jerusalem. That is a good thing. It's not ultimate. We need to understand and be able to differentiate between the good and what the good is pointing us to. The good is pointing us towards the better. The better is pointing us towards the best. The penultimate is pointing us towards the ultimate. And we need to learn to discern the difference. Part of that is immersing ourselves in the Word, where this hope is outlined, where this hope is fanned into flame, and immersing ourselves with the people of God, where that hope can be stoked and encouraged. And when we're off track and our hope is in something less than ultimate, people will correct us and say, hey, chill. Your hope wasn't really in that anyway. We need to understand what our real hope is and treat all the other hopes as less than ultimate. Second, we, the church, are to model the elements the elements of this kingdom that Isaiah describes, this kingdom of peace and righteousness, this kingdom that is our ultimate hope, we're supposed to be modeling that here and now. When Jesus left, he didn't say, okay, I'll come back eventually and we'll get everything set up. He said, you're my church. You're my kingdom embassy. You're supposed to represent what this kingdom is like. The Apostle Paul, writing to a group of Christians in Ephesus, 700, 800 years after Isaiah, I think picks up on some of these themes from Isaiah when he's just describing the church. Remember Isaiah is talking about the wolf laying down with the lamb. And there being no hostility anywhere on the holy mountain of the Lord. Paul says to this group of Christians, in Christ, the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. He's making one new man out of these different groups, Jew and Gentile. 
There was great enmity, animosity between those two beforehand. But now, God has established in Christ the kingdom. And the church is that representation of the kingdom. And so there's no animosity. There's peace and there's harmony, even between the wolf and the lamb. Even between Jew and Gentile, slave, master, fill in the blank. We're supposed to be modeling this kingdom of peace and harmony and righteousness and justice and love and worship. You say, well, Dan, we have not done a very good job of that through the centuries, have we? No, we, we haven't. There's division upon division. That's a great stain on the name of the church. As Bob was talking about last week, there's churches that have split over, denominations that have split over, whether it's an I or an E in Emmanuel. I've seen churches split over the color of curtains and silliness like that. I can't control those things. And you can't. But here, in this locality, in this body, in this church, we can strive together to represent the kingdom well. To model kingdom values, kingdom priorities. To look at one another through the lens of Christ's love. To establish peace and harmony. Not uniformity of thought, but unity amidst the diversity of opinion. We're called to that, called to model the kingdom here and now. So first, we need to recognize that all other hopes that aren't from God are less than ultimate. Second, we need to model the kingdom here and now. The kingdom that is our ultimate hope needs to be lived here and now. And third, we need to be made righteous. Isaiah's words of hope were for the righteous, not the wicked. He says he will establish the righteous, but with the breadth of his mouth, he will strike down the wicked. So we need to be made righteous if this hope is going to be our hope. Now this is a good news, bad news kind of thing. Because it's very clear from Scripture that none of us are righteous. If you don't agree with that, then please go back and listen to the sermons in the early part of the fall when Bob was working through the early chapters of Romans. Paul says there's no one righteous, not even one. None of us seek after the Lord. None of us do good as we ought to. We're all lawbreakers. We're all sinners. Isaiah says it differently. He says, your righteousness, I'm paraphrasing here, yeah, right. Your righteousness, it's like filthy rags. It it accounts for nothing. It's stained. It's dirty. Your righteousness isn't righteous enough. That's the bad news. The good news is that we have a God who has promised to make us righteous. 
Not make us act more righteous, but to make us righteous by giving us righteousness. This hope, I remember I said it was complex. This hope is that the king will come and establish his kingdom, but also make us fit for the kingdom. We're unfit for it. But because of his righteousness, which he gives to us, when we are united to him through faith, we become made fit for his kingdom. This kingdom isn't for the the wicked. It's for the righteous. If you would be righteous, the only way to be righteous is by coming to Christ. He is the one who became sin for us, according to Corinthians, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, This Advent season, we start with hope. Uh, I pray that this week, You'll take the time to evaluate, where is my hope? Have I put it in lesser things? Have I put it in things that will disappoint? Or is my ultimate hope in the eternal kingdom of God? And do I have a quote-unquote right to hope for it? If you're just counting on your good deeds, your good works, being a nice person then that hope is a vain hope. If your hope is in that kingdom and becoming a citizen of it through Christ, it is the best hope I can recommend. It is the only true hope. I pray that this Advent season, you become even more grounded in that hope as we celebrate the birth of hope and look forward to again together the second coming of that hope. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your hope, a hope that shapes not only our future, but our very present. Father, we pray that we would learn as your people to live in light of that hope, to reflect your kingdom, your values as your people, to not be tethered to things of this world that so easily disappoint and fall apart, but to remain an unshakable people because we understand that our true hope, our treasure, our love is in a safe place and it can't be touched. Father, we thank you for the hope that is ours in Jesus Christ. In your precious name we pray. Amen.